13. Exodus 12, 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. <coughs> Excuse me. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that you would fill me afresh with your spirit. Help me to preach your word now, God. I ask that you would help me to be led by your spirit and to be sensitive to all that you would uh, want to do during this service, during this preaching time. God, I ask that your word would be anointed and go out and bear fruit for your purposes, for your glory. And I ask that you would do this so that people would stand in awe of you, God, and we would delight in you more and more and trust you in all things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, Cal. Well, we are continuing on our story of redemption, going through a book of the Bible every week. I hope you were able to follow along with the chapters that we highlighted for Exodus this last week. And uh, when we closed Genesis, what we had was uh, there were about 70 families that joyfully went to Egypt to be safe from all the things that were going on, the famines and stuff. And uh, so what happened was 70 families are there, and now we're looking at 430 years later. So that little gap between the last page of Genesis and the first page of Exodus, 430 years. And now what's happened is uh, those same families grew uh, to over 3 million people. And uh, during that time, somewhere during that time, the pharaoh of a certain age group decided that the Israelites were a danger and they enslaved them. So now we have over 3 million slaves to the Egyptians that are God's people. And what Exodus is, is Exodus is a book that shows us that God is rescuing. He is setting his people free when they are unable to help themselves. Remember, our, our goal is, is to look for Jesus and the gospel in all of these books. And what we find is that the word exodus means this in the Greek, exit, departure, going out. So there we go. Moses is the author and the central human figure in the book of Exodus. You know, I love our God's sense of humor at times because he takes Moses and he raises him up in the world's most outstanding universities and knowledge centers in Egypt, all for the purpose of preparing his servant Moses to write the first five books in the Bible. <laughs> God uses lost people. He's got, God is in charge. God's sovereign over all these things. And we see that Moses is that author of this book and the first five in the, in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, as I said, we're looking for Jesus, uh, types and shadows of Jesus. In other words, where does somebody's life or an event that happened display something about Christ and the, and the gospel? Well, Moses is one of those people that typifies Christ, and it doesn't stop there. We have the Passover lamb, which is another picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The water that comes from the rock, the manna that falls from heaven, the sacrificial offerings the tabernacle, and the high priest. 
All of those are types and shadows of Jesus Christ that we find in Exodus. Now, to summarize Exodus, we can look at it, and there are four major divisions or incidences. Here we go. In chapters 1 through 13, it's about the bondage and deliverance. Chapter 14 is the parting and crossing of the Red Sea. 19 through 31 are the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and 35 through 40 is the construction of the tabernacle. And I found this quote from Dwight L. Moody. I thought it was so fun with regards to Moses. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years learning he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Isn't that true? For all of us. For all of us. God brings us to a place of humility, and then he says, okay, now I'm ready to use you as my tool for my glory. And that's what we see in this book. Now, obviously, in Exodus, the most famous part in Exodus is the ten plagues. How many movies have been done on that? The ten plagues that brought Egypt to its knees. And when we look at this, this, these ten plagues happened around the 13th century. And from when the negotiations started, then the first plague hit, till the end was about a year, a little bit short of a year. So that's the time span that we're looking at. One thing that, uh, if you want to do a study on your own, I would encourage you to do this. The first nine plagues are actually God saying to the Egyptian gods, so you think you're a real God? You think this God that you're serving that looks like a frog is a real God? I'll give you frogs. Let's see if your God can stop them from coming. So these first nine plagues are God showing his supremacy over the false gods of Egypt. Do a study. It's a great study. And all these things are pictures of what the Egyptians were worshiping. And God's just saying, yeah, well, okay. Try, try to hold my hands back if your gods are so great. But obviously, then the tenth plague came. And the tenth plague is the clearest Old Testament picture of salvation through faith in Jesus' shed blood. Just like Genesis chapter 3 was the key chapter in Genesis because it explained the fall of man and it, without Genesis 3, none of the rest of the Bible would make sense. Exodus chapter 12 is key because it's the first real clear picture of this glorious gospel that we have. Take a look at God's word. Again, we're going to go through some parts of chapter 12. Go back and read it yourself. Exodus 12, 5 through 7 and 11 through 14. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. Jesus was without sin in thought, word, or deed. And if you go back and you look, what, what they had to do was examine the lamb to make sure that it was without any blemishes. And that's why God said, do this. It was a picture of Christ even there. It's got to be a perfect lamb. No, nothing wrong with it at all. It goes on. Keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Kill the lamb and take its blood and sprinkle it on the doorpost. And then it goes on in verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. That's where we get that term Passover. It's not our term. It's God's term. 
And that word Passover means to pass over or to spare. So when we think of the Passover, then that's where it comes from, that term. comes from the Word of God, and God chose to use that term. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So we see a picture of the cross right there. Incredible picture. You see, this Passover lamb was something that would be a picture of what Christ would do for us on the cross. What we see is that God literally passed over the homes that had the blood on them. He passed over them. He didn't bring judgment to them. He didn't bring judgment to them if they were marked by faith with the blood of the Lamb. Why do I say by faith? Well, because if you were a, an Israelite back then and somebody said, okay, God's coming, he's going to take the firstborn male of every home, so just put blood on your doorposts and your son won't die. But what has that got to do with saving my son? So you had to do it by faith. God said do it. I will do it. I will trust God that this will take care of the judgment that is coming. So that it was by faith that they put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. That's why we see again that this is a picture of God and what he was doing in Christ. And he says here that, you know what, from now on, you've got to remember this. You've got to remember what I did. We're going to call it the Passover, remember what I did. We still do that today, did you know that? We call it the Lord's Supper or Communion. But what do we do? We're remembering God's deliverance of us from our sin and the penalty that we had that we deserve. So when we take communion, it's as if we're celebrating, we're honoring this section of Scripture by saying, do this, keep remembering what I have done for you to set you free from Egypt, from bondage. And so that's the picture that we have. When we celebrate communion, we remember. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And we think about what Christ did, our Passover lamb, that he went to the cross for us. He paid the price. His blood is applied to the doorposts of our heart. And when God sees that by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's what we're putting our hope in, that this judgment that we so deserve will be passed over us won't, become, won't come to us because of what Christ has done for us. That great exchange we always talk about here. The exchange of me being a sinner, separated from God, deserving punishment, and yet what happened is God considered it as if that were Christ's. And Jesus paid the penalty for us. And the perfect righteousness that Jesus is, he never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He was that perfect lamb. What happened is, is that his righteousness is, is considered as if it were ours, imputed to us. That great exchange happens right there. And that's what 
causes us to know that, you know what, when we die, we will not be judged for our sin. Christ has already paid that punishment for us, so we have passed over God's judgment, and it's coming. Uh, it went to Christ, not to us. So what we see is that this Passover lamb foreshadowed redemption. This is redemption story series. What is redemption? It means purchased from slavery. Purchased from slavery. So the Passover lamb foreshadowed redemption in Christ, our Passover lamb. And from this first one till when Jesus came, 1,500 years, 1,500 years. But God was signaling way back then, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is a picture of my son Christ who's going to come 1,500 years from now. Take a look at God's word. Again, 1 Corinthians 5, 7b. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You want to go through a study, obviously, Jesus, when he, the Last Supper, we call it, that was the Passover meal. They call it the Seder meal, and the Jewish people still celebrate that to this day, and they don't even realize how much of it symbolizes Christ. Do a study of that sometime. And it was that Passover, that day where they were about to sacrifice the national lamb. The next day, the Jews were celebrating Passover. And when the lamb was slaughtered, a lot of people don't know this, but when the lamb was slaughtered after the, the national lamb, each family would sacrifice a lamb, and then the national lamb was sacrificed. And when a national lamb was sacrificed, what the priest would do is he would go out and he would, they would blow the shofar, the ram's horn. And the priest would do this. He would throw out his arms and he would say, it is finished. And that was the day that Jesus died on the cross. Many scholars believe that Jesus, when he was on the cross, heard the shofar being blown and he himself said, it is finished. Isn't that cool? God is so incredible. God is great. John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. That's John the Baptist and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was thinking all the way back to the Passover. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit enlightening John to say that. And then John chapter 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, these words that are used in the Word of God aren't random. They, they represent things. That's why it's so important for us to just stop and slow down. Stop worrying about checking off the chapter you've got to read for that day and just delight in it. Slow down, read it. See what words are used. What, how does this all come together, God? Show me. You see, to slay this lamb was not enough. They, they could slay the lamb all day long, but it didn't do the family any good unless something happened, unless they applied the blood to their door. You see, the blood was sufficient for anyone. Whoever put that blood on their doorpost, apparently some Egyptians did because when we see the Exodus, some Egyptians followed. So what happened? Whoever applied the blood to the door were passed over. But whoever did, it worked. It, 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 there was no judgment. But whoever didn't, whoever didn't, their firstborn was taken. 
You see, the blood is sufficient for all, but only applied to those who receive the gift of salvation. That's why we believe at this church in what we would call particular or specific atonement. People say, well, Jesus died for everyone. Yes, his blood is powerful enough to anybody who applies, anyone who by God's grace through faith in Jesus applies the blood of Christ to their life is saved. But he died for those who would be saved, not for everyone. Otherwise, everyone would have to be saved. The blood was sufficient, but it only was relevant to the people who applied it to their lives. That's what we mean when we say that term here. It's specific atonement or particular atonement. Jesus died for the sins of all who would believe, 100%. And anyone who would believe, the blood is sufficient. Then and now, salvation was accomplished by a simple act of faith. You see, it's always been about faith in God's word. Always been about faith. It's not been about works. It's about God saying, do this and judgment will pass over you. And that's the picture that we see here. We see the gospel over and over again. That we were held in bondage. And we could not help ourselves get out of it. There's nothing we could do. So God made a way. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect sinless life. He was the spotless, precious lamb. And then he was crucified on the cross. And three days later rose from the dead. And all who would put their faith in him, saying, you know what, if God says that's what it is, that's how a person is made right with him, that judgment would pass over us, then I am putting my faith by God's grace in Christ. And I know that judgment will pass over me. When I die, I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven because of what God has done. Because we were helpless. We couldn't do it. So then what happens is, is we get to the next part of this story. What, what occurs is that, that God says, listen, get ready. Because when this tenth plague hits, you better be ready to go because he's going to release you. So be ready. Tenth plague hits and the people are released. And what happens? They come to the Red Sea. There's this huge sea in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them. They're stuck. And what God does is God makes a way for their freedom. That Red Sea typifies us breaking away from the world, leaving it behind us, leaving that bondage behind us of sin, the penalty for sin, the fear of death, leaving all that behind in Egypt, in the world. And we're going across through the Red Sea. God is making a break from his people from Egypt forever. That's what we see here in the Red Sea, that God is separating his people from the world. The wilderness is ahead. It's going to be a challenge, isn't it? But they're free from bondage. They're set free forever. It's amazing to see, when you think about it in a broader sense, how the effect of the living God on two nations was completely different. You had the world power, Egypt, ruling the world. And God brings her to her knees. Then you have this little group of Three million slaves in Egypt, known as the Israelites, and they become a nation. 
It's amazing, amazing what happens here as we see the living God affect nations right here in, in the words before us. And what we see is that God brings them out. He sets them free. To do what? To do what? To follow him. To follow him. That's why he brought them out, for his glory. To follow him. Wherever you see the pillar of fire or the, 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 the pillar of the cloud, follow it. Follow me. So what we see is that God frees us to follow him. He says, you know what? If you want true freedom, I'm the way. And what we find in God's word is that today, as back in Exodus, true faith requires obedience. It requires action. It's not... God set you free to live like the devil and do whatever you want. God says, you know what? I set you free that you might follow me. That's where you're going to find your joy. That's where you're going to find your peace. Follow me. I set you free to follow me. And what we find is this, is that true freedom includes submission to God's authority. See, we don't want to put those two words in the same sentence, freedom and submission. But God is saying, Yes, that's what it's about. If you want real freedom, real, true, joy-filled freedom, then submit to my authority. Submit to my authority. And what we find is that as God is moving through and he's taken them and set them free out of Egypt, and they go through the Red Sea and, and that life is behind them, what is the first thing God does? He gives them the law. Gives them the law. It's amazing because the law is an expression of God's lordship. The law is an expression of God's lord. And in chapters 19 through 31, he talks about the law. Now, when I say the law, here's what I mean. I'm going to summarize it as the Ten Commandments, okay? There were other laws that were there, but primarily we're talking about the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law. So when I say that, you know what I mean. So they get out, they cross the Red Sea, they go to Mount Sinai, and there God gives them the Ten Commandments. Why? What was, you know? The law in Exodus chapter 20 is a gift of grace to people that were already accepted. You see, even in the way that this is laid out, what it's showing us is that it is never, and it has never been about works being made right with God. You don't gain God's favor because of what you do. You see, they got the law after they were set free, not before. It wasn't, hey, here's my Ten Commandments and live by them. And those of you that live by them well enough, you're the ones I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue. Everybody else, no. But what we see here is we see that God rescues them because of his grace, because of his mercy. They are his people. He declared that. And then they go through the Red Sea, that breaking from the world, and now they go to Mount Sinai, and God says, now here is the law. This is a gift of grace to you as a believer. See, we don't look at the law like that. But what is the purpose for the law? Well, first of all, did you know that the law is a picture of who God is? It's a picture of God's character, that God is holy and God is good and God is pure, and God is truth. That's why he says, do not lie. And God is, is kind, 
God is righteous and unchangeable. You see, the law is a picture of who God is. He says, this is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. So don't do these. These are the things opposite of me. So do these things. Do you remember in Scripture where it says, be, be ye holy as I am holy? How does it, what does that look like? By walking according to obedience to the law. We don't do it to earn salvation or acceptance because we already have that from God. We do it out of love, not out of duty. And so what we have is we have this law that is an illustration of God's character. And what it also is is this. It shows us what sin is. It shows us what, it doesn't cause us to sin. The law doesn't make us sin. It just shows us what sin is. Without the law, we would have no idea what sin is. And we would have no idea how desperately we need God's grace because we can't do it. We can't do the law. Take a look at God's word again. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? The law is evil? I mean, it, what should we say? Yet if it, by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. He's saying, the law helped me understand what's right and what's wrong. That's what it does. That's part of its job. As one portion says in Scripture, it's a school teacher. It teaches us what's right and what's wrong. The way to live in a way that honors God. And then in Romans 8, 3 through 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that. So he's saying, the law pointed out sin. Okay, showed you what it was, but you couldn't do it in your own strength. The law gave you no power to do it. It just showed you what was right and what was wrong. But it didn't give you the power to do it. Didn't give you the ability to fulfill it. And then it goes in here in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So he sent his son Jesus so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. What was the righteous requirement of the law? It's this. You could never sin in thought, word, or deed in order to spend eternity with God in heaven. Bare minimum, God's holy. He wasn't going to have sin in his presence. So what did God do? It's that great exchange I explained. Jesus did for us what we could not do. He lived a perfectly sinless life. And when we, by God's grace, through faith in Christ alone, accept that gift of salvation, what happens then is God considers as if Jesus' life that he lived, as if we lived it. It's imputed to us. That's how the righteous requirements of the law were met. And the other side of that is that righteously, you and I deserve to be punished for the sin that we have committed. Well, it has been punished in Christ. And so the righteous requirements of the law are completely fulfilled in Jesus. The law was weak. It couldn't point. It couldn't give us a power to walk perfectly. But Jesus did it for us. They were met. And it goes on. Those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What we see is that the law does not make us sin, but it points out sin. And it says, listen, this is right, this is wrong. This is what God's like. And so what occurs is, this never, this, I never thought about this until this week. I have to be honest with you. It's also a guide for everyday living. Do you realize that? And I thought, well, why? Why did the people need a guide for everyday living? Because they were slaves. 
How many choices did they have daily? Very few. You got up in the morning and you went and made bricks for 20 hours or whatever it was. And you came home and you shoved something down to, get, to feed yourself. And then you slept and you went right back at it. And now all of a sudden, this group of slaves, three million of them, are set free and they have the whole day to themselves. What am I going to do? Nobody's here telling me what to do. Well, they were set free for a purpose to follow God and to live holy. So now God is saying, here's how you make your choices. You know that goat that you want that your buddy has because he had a little bit more cash than you? No, you can't steal that goat. That's greed. And so what happened is these three million people now suddenly are set free. How do I live as a free person? And God, in his goodness and his kindness, gives them the law. He says, this is what it looks like. This is how you're going to be happiest, by living according to this law. And it's still, still true for us today. We fight against God's word. We fight against the things. He says, don't do this, do this. And we fight against it. We want to say, you know what, that was written a long time ago. We're smarter than this now. And God says, no, listen, I created you. And I gave you your freedom. And I know where you're going to have the most joy and the most peace in your freedom. And it is by obeying me and following me, not doing the opposite. So if you really want to experience freedom, you submit to the Lord's authority. And you delight in God and his word. And even the law, saying this is a picture of who you are, God. And this is an example of how I can live to honor you in a world that is coming apart at the seams. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture because these people needed to know how to live properly in light of their freedom, and they didn't. How could they? And who was the perfect example on how to live in this world? Old school people, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Why? Because he was our example. That's what Scripture says, to follow his example. Jesus came and he lived the law perfectly. And so, so many times you think, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? Jesus was the perfect example of how to live a life fully pleasing to the Father. He was that example. So the law comes in, he is set free, he is free for a purpose to follow God, bring him glory. And God says, and this is how you follow me. But the law was weak, right? couldn't give us the ability to do that. It just showed us what was right and wrong. So God steps in. God steps in. And what happens is, is that he grants us the power to live in obedience to his word. His spirit dwells within us. His presence dwells within us. He empowers us to walk in obedience to what he said. This is the law. This is where you're going to find your most joy. I set you free from your bondage, from your sin, from fear of death, fear of, of uh, all these other things. I set you free to follow me. Here's what it looks like to follow me. But you don't have the power to do that. So I'm going to give you the power to walk in obedience to me. I'm going to give you my spirit who will empower you to obey, who will indwell you, who will tabernacle within you. 
Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit will tabernacle within you. If you go to John chapter 1, I think it's verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt means tabernacled among us. You see, God causes his spirit to dwell within his people to empower us to walk in holiness. It's amazing, God's word. Absolutely amazing. He empowers us by indwelling us. Take a look at God's word again. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Don't you know that? What's the parallel in the Old Testament? Well, in Exodus chapter 25, 8 through 9, let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Do it specifically. There's a reason. It's not because God is a control freak. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That means redeemed. You were bought with a price from slavery. You were redeemed. So glorify God in your body. This is so sweet, and I, again, I didn't see this pattern until this week in the Word of God. I didn't see it in Exodus. That's why I encourage you to study as well. The largest percentage of Exodus is about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the place that God dwelt in the midst of his people in the wilderness. Isn't that sweet? You had the tabernacle in the center of the camp and all the other tribes were around it. God was at the center. God was at the center. And the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt among his people. That's why it says when the, when the cloud lifted or whatever moved, follow it. God was leading his people exactly where he wanted them. And this tabernacle was a picture of, of what God was going to do in the future. It was his presence among his people. And everything about the tabernacle, everything, its dimensions, its furnishings, its functions, and its order. Here's why it wasn't random. It's a preview of the functions that Jesus would fulfill among us. Another great study. Do a study on the tabernacle and see all the ways that it points to Jesus. The table of showbread. Isn't Jesus the bread of life? The candlesticks. Isn't Jesus the light of the world? And it goes on and on and on and on. Pieces of wood that were covered in gold. What does that represent? Many times people believe that represents Christians. Me and myself, I'm just flesh. But because I'm God's, I'm redeemed. You see all the symbolism that's in the tabernacle. And that's why God said, I want you to do this exactly the way I said. Because this is bigger. This is broader than just now. There's something in here that, that I'm not doing this randomly. I have a purpose behind it. And it may not seem like it to you, but guys, when you build this tabernacle, do it exactly as I say. Because it has something to do with people in La Crescent Free Church in 2023 on January 15th. So do it exactly the way I said. You see, the old... Testament tabernacle 
was a place where God dwelled, and now his spirit dwells within us. You see the beautiful pattern in Exodus? The gospel pattern? I mean, this is the gospel, the whole book. I get so excited about it because I just say, God, yes, we're in bondage, and there's nothing we can do to set ourselves free. So you make a way, God, through the Passover lamb that we would pass from judgment and we would go to freedom and God would go through. We'd leave behind that world. We don't have to fear anymore. We walk through that, those waters and we get to the other side and there's your, the beauty of your law that says here's how you live in a way that will bring you most joy and me most glory. And here's the law and it's a great thing. And I know you can't live it. Not in your own strength. So I'm going to provide. And my presence is going to dwell within you. My presence dwelt within the temple back then. But my presence dwells within you now. You see, that's, that was all this stuff that was related. Remember when Jesus died? And it talks about this veil was torn. Remember that? The veil was at the center of the tabernacle. It was called the Holy of Holies. And the priest went in there once a year to make a sacrifice where the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. And what happened was is that there was this curtain all the way around it, and only one time a year could the high priest go in there, nobody else. When Jesus died, it talks about, and the veil was torn from top to bottom. Why? That veil goes all the way back to Genesis or Exodus, and that separated the common man from God's very presence and when Jesus died, the way was opened up. And it goes all the way back to Exodus, talking about the temple, talking about the, the tabernacle and the holy of holies and what was around it. That's a picture that we see of the glory of God. You see, God was in charge back then, and he's in charge now. We think these were random events in history. God is sovereign over all of history, brothers and sisters. It's not just back when Egypt was in power and God brings the world power to his knee, its knees, nor a little insignificant nation and brings it out and births his own people. God has been sovereign and is sovereign now. And we can delight in the fact that God has purpose in all these things. They may not make any sense. But can we delight in the fact that our God rules and reigns that he is sovereign over all the events of the world, and they are not random. He has a purpose in them, and his purpose is for his glory. And so we sit down, and whatever you're going through, whatever struggles you see, whatever's happening in the world, we can rest in our hope of our God, that he is sovereign, that he is ruling and reigning, and he is bringing history to its proper conclusion, which is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And we look at that, and we say, yeah, even now... I mean, 1,500, however many, 3,500 years ago when, when they crossed the Red Sea, it had something to do with us. It was a picture of what God was going to do in Christ. And God is still working now, brothers and sisters. He is in charge. Our sovereign God is in charge. Exodus is our God's design for our deliverance from sin's bondage. It's a picture of that. It's a glorious picture of that. God rescuing, setting his people free when they were unable to help themselves. It's called grace. It's called Passover lamb.
We were in bondage to sin, just like the Israelites. We were powerless to help ourselves. So Jesus, our Passover lamb, came, and he freed us from sin. He freed us from the bondage of sin. He freed us from the penalty of sin. He freed us from the power of sin, freedom from fearing death, and he did it by shed blood. That's what he did. And you see, if you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior today, he tabernacles within you. He resides within you. He resides within you to empower you to be able to walk in obedience to God, to follow him in all his ways, and to do so for his glory and your joy. You see, God does it all, brothers and sisters. He always has. He always will. And he calls us to obedience. And he empowers us to do that. But ultimately, we only receive our freedom by faith. Just like they did. Same thing for us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, again, your word is so glorious and so beautiful. Lord, we see you over and over again in it, in places that were right before our eyes that we missed. Lord, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your plan of redemption that you had from before the foundations of the world and how throughout human history you have laid it out and you have carried it out. And so today, Lord, we thank you that we were a part of that plan. God, I thank you that your spirit dwells within us, that we're accepted by you and loved by you and we have favor in your eyes because of what you've done for us, not because of what we do. Lord, help us to delight in you more and more, to find our peace in you, our freedom in you. And God, do this so that through our lives, your name might be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Well, let's stand and continue to worship.